Hey, you are listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Seven Mile Road. We are a gospel-centered church just north of Boston, Mass. To learn more about who we are and what we are going for together, just go to sevenmilemelrose.com. All right, let me start right here with you. Good preaching does a million things, but this is the, one of the things that it does. It helps you to see Christ rightly. Good preaching forces you to look at Christ. That is the big E on the I chart of preaching. To help people see Christ, that is the wind that you would come to grips with and love and want to obey Christ. That means you are not primarily looking at me this morning. I know it's weird because technically you are, but the last thing you are trying to do is process me or my way or my mannerisms or God forbid my looks or anything about this. You're not supposed to be looking at me. You're supposed to be looking through me to Christ. And just as important, you're not supposed to be looking at you A sermon doesn't help you if the first thing that it does is try to get you to help and save and fix yourself. You're trying to step out of yourself and say, I need to see Christ. I need to see Christ. Look at Christ. See him for who he is. See him rightly. And that changes everything. Has anybody ever heard the phrase, I can't unsee that? I just saw something that I cannot unsee. Have you heard this before? So usually we we use it in like creepy or troubling situations, right? Have you ever seen one of those flexible fifth graders and they're like, watch what I can do. Then they take their right foot and they put it behind their neck. Then they take their left foot and they put that behind their neck. And then they start doing like weird somersaults. Have you not seen this? See, if you ever saw it, you would not be able to unsee it. It like stops you. Sometimes we think of terrible things that have happened. Do you have issues with what your eyes have seen and you just can't put it out? So the intersection that I grew up in, Glendale Square in Everett, about 10 years ago, hot summer day, and I'm parked and it's traffic's wicked backed up. And there is this grandmother And she is fighting with her granddaughter. They are screaming at each other. And you know that moment grips you and you're like, okay, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to not do? I'm watching it unfold. I'm troubled. All of a sudden, I forget the words now. See, you can forget the words, but I don't forget what I saw. The girl screamed at the grandmother. And the grandmother must have been right-handed because she went, kaboom. And she slapped this sixth grader directly across the face. And I remember going, what am I supposed to do right now? Am I supposed to pull in front of that car and take this kid out and say, you're standing here until I call the police. What do I do? And as I was processing it, the light turned green. Do you know what happens to me every time I go through that intersection? I can see that hand coming. There's something about the way that we're wired that we see things and they sear into us. For bad but also for good, for good. Anybody ever go to Northern Arizona and the Grand Canyon? Have you done this before? You walk up that hill, you go out and you hold onto the bar and you look across and your eyes 
start trying to send these messages to your brain, and there's like a fight, right? Your eyes are going, look, and your brain is going, this is not possible. And then your eyes are saying, no, I'm serious, look, and your brain is going, it can't be that deep. It can't be that broad. There's no way. I have seen the Grand Canyon. I've seen the hand of God in the Grand Canyon. And there's nothing that can ever take that sight away from me. Did anybody see Michael Jordan jump from the free throw line in the 1986 NBA slam dunk contest with his gold chain hanging out? If you did, you would immediately go, I saw that. I watched it and I cannot unsee it. Anybody ever walk through the woods in Colorado at 6 a.m. on a hike and you take a bend and a six foot tall deer takes a bend and you're both staring into each other's eyes for a moment and then you shriek like a third grade girl and the deer runs off? I will never be able to unsee that deer. Any man in this room married? Do you remember when those doors opened at the back of that church, of that space? And she walked in and you were like, oh, she showed up. And you can never unsee the beauty of that moment. There's a reason that God has wired you this way and then use the metaphor in scripture for seeing. Because here's what happens in the life of a Christian. You see Christ for who he is and you can never unsee that again. And it literally changes everything. This is how the gospel works. You see him in his glory. You see him in his grace. You see him in his authority and his power. But you see him in his meekness and his lowliness. And you say, I need him. I need him. Often, this is like a one-time or one-season event so I could give you guys the mic and say, tell me about the first time that you saw Christ. For me, I was kind of little, fifth, sixth grade. I had heard about the cross, but I never saw it before. And then there was some summer night in Revere, and there was some gospel content, and I don't know what happened, but I saw Christ that night, like Christ crucified for me. And I've never been able to unsee Christ from that moment. But it's not just a one-time event that that happens and you go, wait a minute, wait a minute, I can see Christ. But you need to have that sight over and over and over and over again in your life. That's why we're here on Sundays. That's why we open our Bibles. That's why we have gospel conversations. We need to see Christ. But not a soft Christ, not a pathetic Christ, not an edited Christ, not a knockoff Jesus. We need to see the real Christ in all of his glory. Have you ever been promised something was going to be great and then when you experienced it, it wasn't? So I went to work a couple of weeks ago. I walked through the double doors and you know what's sitting on the receptionist's desk? A Cane's donut box. This is like 7.13 in the morning. So I'm like, there's got to be a butternut donut in this thing the size of my head. So I go over to the box. I open it. 
the box was from yesterday. The only thing in there was some raggedy muffin that one of these women that I work with had made at home and made its way into the box. I didn't need to see that. I needed to see a Cane's donut. Do you know what happens in churches throughout this post-Christian, post-modern America? People come to see Christ and we give them this pathetic version of Christ. That's not what we need. We need to see the real Christ of the Gospels. So that's what we try and do in the life of our church over and over again. And this fall, we're going to Luke's Gospel so that we may see Christ, that we may see him. That's what's going to happen for you today if you will allow it. Today's text helps us see Christ in this spectacular way. It gives us an example of what it looks like for someone to see him so rightly, so accurately, so appropriately, that even Christ himself goes, wow, time out. This guy can see me for who I am. And so your question needs to be, do I see Christ like that? If Jesus was with me, would he go, you're not gonna believe this, this person is seeing me for who I am. All right, now all I'm gonna do with you as a pastor today is just walk down the words of the story and just let them rock it off of you so that you may see this. That's what's gonna show up on the screen. Let's do it. All right, after Jesus had finished all his sayings, all his preaching in the hearing of the people, Jesus entered Capernaum. All right, Jesus was a traveling preacher but he had a home base, he had a headquarters, and it wasn't his hometown of Nazareth because they kicked him out of there. It was this other town of Capernaum. Anybody ever heard of Apple? Where's Apple's headquarters? Cupertino. Jess, you got a watch and a phone and, and all that? You an Apple girl? Apple Park, you ever seen it? It looks like something fell out of Star Trek episode and dropped in a field in California. It's this round silver building. If you work at Apple, that's where you go to get your stuff done. Uh, Google is in Santa Clara, California too, right? The Googleplex, that's home base. What if you work for the Red Sox? Where is it? It used to be Yawkey Way. We canceled him, so now it's Lansdowne Street or whatever they call it. That's the headquarters for the Boston Red Sox. That's where they do their thing. What about Jesus? It was Capernaum. That's where Peter's home was. That became Jesus' home base and resting place. So when you read these words, you go, Jesus is coming back to headquarters. He's been preaching. He's tired. He's ready to rest. You feel it? All right. Next verse says this. Now a centurion. Okay, stop. If you met the average Bostonian, okay, what are some things that you are totally expecting to be true about them? What's on that list? They drive crazy because you can't not if you're going to survive with all the rotaries, right? They vote blue. You'd be super surprised if it's not blue that they vote. They love the Sox and the Pats and the Celtics and the Bruins. They don't even know what college football is, right? That's a good Bostonian. Dunkin' Donuts in the hand 24-7. What are some things that you would totally not expect to be true about a Bostonian? Own a gun? That would be weird, right? 
Felipe and I both grew up in Everett, and I was like, you ever shoot a gun? And he goes, no. I go, me neither. Oh, man. <laughs> then I met this kid in central Indiana. He was like, you never shot a gun before? Next time you come out here, we're going on my property. I'll show you how this thing works. Know how to drive a tractor, like fried okra. Anybody ever heard of that? Of course not, because you're Bostonian. What is that? There'd be some things that you wouldn't expect. All right, centurion. This is a Roman soldier who is not just a soldier, but in charge of a hundred soldiers. That's a big number. He's in charge. What would you expect to be true about this man? So you'd expect some tattoos and some USFC vibe, right? He has risen up the military ranks. He has choked some people out. This is a barrel-chested, strong, martial arts kind of guy. Probably a man of great character, right? That's how you rise up at these ranks. You've done right all along your military career. Definitely living a worldly life, right? Roman, pagan, whatever goes along with that, he would be into it. Totally expecting him to be very proud, sort of elite, above all the rest of the riffraff. That's what you would expect of a centurion. What would you not expect? Well, you would never expect that he would be affectionate and attached to a slave. That makes completely no sense. He's an accomplished centurion. Slaves are totally disposable. You would never expect intimacy and affection and care for a slave. Nor would you ever expect him to be tight with the Jewish elders or the Jewish community. This would make no sense. Roman soldiers and Jewish elders do not mix. Is anybody old enough to remember when Nellie and Tim McGraw did a song together and you were just looking at the radio like, what is going on right now? This is not meant to be. I was not expecting this. That's what would happen if you ever saw a centurion tight with Jewish elders. There's no way this is going to happen. Well, as we keep reading, both of those expectations unravel. Here's what we read next. It said, the centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death and highly valued by him. This is not a transactional word. This is a word of affection. We would say dear to him. Everybody feel this? It's a mega surprise. This slave is dying, whatever, just replace them. But instead, he's broken up. He's invested in what he sees happening with this servant. His heart is moved by this. And then we read these words next where it said, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. He loves our nation and he's the one who built our synagogue. Okay, you know what a wicked shaka is? That's this right here, total surprise. Not just that he's connected to the elders, like maybe they were intersecting in the leading of this area, but that they're coming on his behalf, they're tight enough 
that he has this line of communication and he could make a request and they would go and pursue Jesus on it? That this man of great wealth used that wealth and influence to build a church, a synagogue, where God's law could be promulgated and his people growing? What is going on here? This guy's heart is somehow alive to the true and living God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. All right, who is really surprised by this? Jesus, he is intrigued. He is like, wait a minute, what? And so even though he's home to rest, he gets up and says, I gotta go see what this is about. I wanna go meet this guy. What is going on? And so we read that Jesus went with them. And when he was not too far from the guy's house, the centurion sent friends saying, Lord, stop. Don't trouble yourself to take another step. For I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. So Jesus is actually coming. The centurion realizes that somewhere in there the messages got mixed. And so he sends some more servants to stop Jesus in his tracks and to say, you don't have to take another step. He pulls a 180 on the elder's words. They had said what? He is worthy. But what is this man's understanding of himself? What is it? I am not worthy. I am not worthy for you to even, like you shouldn't even have to step on my deck, no less come into my house. No way. Does everybody feel the shocking humility in what this man is doing in this space right here? Don't you love people like this? Have you ever heard about someone and someone's just bragging on them? They're just like, you gotta meet them. They're so awesome. Bop, bada, bop, bada, bop, bada, bop, bada, bop. You're not gonna believe it. And you haven't met them yet. And so you figure when I meet them, they're all gonna be like standoffish and proud. They're gonna be like 10 feet tall. I can't approach them. And then when you actually meet them, they are warm and humble and accessible. Have you had that experience before? That's this man. Everything about him strikes as he is worthy, but his own self-assessment is what? I am not worthy. What has Jesus just finished preaching about? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Now we have a real live living example of that. If that's not wild enough, he says this, through his servants to Jesus. Just say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man under authority. I have soldiers under me. I say go, he goes. I say come, he goes. I say do this and he does it. Okay, this is a military man. He gets authority and he hears about Christ and he watches Christ and what does he see? He sees authority. Military is unbelievably helpful for us to see this side of Christ. 
So my second cousin, Andrew Quintero, right? I'm half Puerto Rican. You would never, ever know it by looking at me. But all the Puerto Ricans who married Cubans and Puerto Ricans, they're all like really dark with awesome Latin names. And then there's me and my brother, tall and white and K-R-U-S-C. His son, Andrew, went to the Norwich Military Academy um, up in Vermont. And uh, at the first Thanksgiving, he comes in with his buzz cut and his super tight, you know, camos. And we're asking him about what it's like up there. And uh, he gave us this one story. And he said, so my dorm is here. And there's this giant quad in the middle. And then our classes and the cafeteria and stuff's way on the other side. And he says, but I have never, ever taken a shortcut across the middle. I have walked this way, pivot, walked this way, pivot, and walked this way. He said, if you come up there, the only people you will ever see step on that grass are the civilians. And I was like, why? What's the big deal? And he basically, he just said to me, because my superior officer said it. That's why. He told us, here's how you get from here to there. You don't ever take the shortcut. You stay on that path and you walk in formation until you get there. It would never cross his mind to cheat on that walk. Why? Andrew is a man under authority, and Andrew has someone over him in authority. You feel that? So I went to high school in East Boston. My basketball coach was a retired Marine officer. There was no question in anyone's mind that if he said something happens, it happened. If he said 15 suicides right now, did anyone go, ah, that sounds like too many. How about 12? Did anybody make any excuse? What did you do? You put your head down and you ran. Do you know the story of the day that a girl, friend of mine came to pick me up from practice? All right, I'll give you this because it's worth it. It's gonna make it two minutes longer. But I'm on the point of authority. So there was this girl interest in my life when I was a sophomore. And she had a car. Huh. So she said, hey, you want to pick you up after school and I'll take you to church. And I was like, of course I do. This psycho comes to pick me up. She's 10 minutes early. And she comes in the gym. And she goes over to my coach. And she asks for Matthew Cruz. And he very tenderly, very politely lets her know that practice won't be over for another 10 or 15 minutes. She walks out. He blows the whistle. And then, he wasn't a big guy. He grabs me by the shirt, the tank top. He pulls me about one inch from my face. And he goes ballistic. He threatens me, my family, my dead ancestors, my future offspring, that if a girl ever comes within 62 miles of this school again, it will be over for me. We laugh about it now with the assistant coaches, you know. In the moment, it wasn't that funny. <laughs> Do you think I ever had a girl pick me up from school again? By my senior year, I was completely in love with Grace. Do you think I had her come get me up? Not even her come get me after practice. Why? Authority. Now, did the coach love me? Yeah. He like wept 
at the awards banquet at the end of my senior year. But he wielded authority in that space and what he said goes. Do you feel it? The military man, something happened in his vision of Christ. He saw that this kind of thing was true about Jesus when it came to sickness and illness. That Christ had authority over the human body. So much so that he didn't just tell Jesus, don't come to my house, I don't deserve you to. What did he say? He said, don't keep walking, why? You don't even need to. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. In other words, what? The power is not in the magic of the way that you say the words or touch the person. The power is in who you are. It's in your authority. Now, I know that we tend to struggle with these words, right? You are an American, which means you hate authority. It is suspect to you. In one sense, we have good reasons to be that way because we have all experienced the abuse of authority. But remember, the wrong use of a good thing does not eliminate the good use of a good thing. And that is the way that it works with authority. God is the author of this world and he holds authority over it and he works in it through authority. And Jesus held the authority of God. We shy away from those words. We don't like it. But who did not mind that the man made that connection, that the man saw the authority of Christ? Who didn't mind at all? Jesus. He didn't even flinch when this guy saw his authority. He didn't go, no, 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 no. Don't, that's a bad metaphor. Don't get into the whole authority thing. That's not who I am. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus not only didn't disagree with him, he affirmed him at the highest possible pitch. How did he say it? When Jesus heard these things, he marveled and turning to the crowd, he said, I am telling you, not even among God's people has someone seen me so rightly. I'm telling you, not even in Israel have I found this kind of faith. In other words, what? This guy sees it. He can see something about me that nobody else is seeing. Finally, somebody gets it. Those who should have seen it in like a week, that's all you needed is one week of watching Christ. You should have said, this is the one. Those on the inside who should have seen it, couldn't see it. One of Luke's themes throughout his gospel is that the outsiders need to be brought in in order to help all of us to see it. Have you ever had a friend that all they do is complain about their mom, complain about their dad, complain about their life and their house? It's so terrible. And then you go get some time with them and you're like, this is actually pretty awesome. I love your dad. You got a great mom. All right, maybe you got to share a room with your sister. But this is pretty sweet compared to the other 99.9% .9 of people that ever lived in Earth's history. 
You're on the inside of it and you can't see it. It takes an outsider to come to help you to see it. Does everyone feel this? That's what's happening in this story. Israel should have known the authority of Christ, that he came as God's prophet to speak God's truth and save God's people. But their vision was clouded, not the centurion. This man saw. He saw Christ as able, and he saw Christ as willing. And then we see the last part of this, and this is the joy of the gospel that we have been given. When those who had been sent got back to the house, they found the servant well. At the end of this story, we should all be like, you have to be kidding me. You are telling me that the power to heal was infused in the person of Christ and not just the power, but the willingness. He didn't just have the authority to heal, but he was looking for those who would believe that he wanted to heal and he did it. The story has given us to point to the bigger reality of the gospel. All right, so here's the believe question I want you to take from this story. It's so simple. Do you see Christ like the centurion did? Here's how a Christian goes through their life, thinking like this. Christ has authority over every molecule in the universe. There isn't a square inch of this world that Christ doesn't point to and say, it's mine. And that includes me. And he intends to use that authority for my good. Can you see why a true Christian, a genuine Christian, is simultaneously the most lowly and humble person you have ever met under authority? But they also stand up straight with steel in their back because they know who their authority is and that he is for them. That's how a Christian walks through life. Anybody see the Avengers? Any crazy people that's like, I've seen all of them 12 times, Disney Plus, blah, 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 blah. Colin, okay. There's this one scene, I forget which one it is because they muddy in my head, but you know, they're flying around and fighting and gravity and Spider-Man and it's like two different teams and they don't know that they're both against a real bad purple guy. And so in the middle of the fight, you know, they talk to each other. In the middle of the fight, they stop and the guy in the robes is floating and he says, hold on. Let me ask you this one question. What master do you serve? And then the super punk wise guy with the gadgets says, what master do I serve? What am I supposed to say, Jesus? What's the answer? It's exactly what you're supposed to say. Every single molecule in this universe, if it could speak, it would resoundingly give the answer, Christ. If the trees could talk and you asked them that question, they would say Christ. If the supernovas could talk and you asked them that question, they would say Christ. 
rivers and mountains and valleys and eagles, all of nature knows Christ. We get to join that chorus. Oh man, I so wish I was the guy with the gadgets because as soon as the guy in the robe asked me, I would have said, Christ, Christ, Christ. The military centurion saw it. Do you see it? Do you see it?